Welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yordana Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Sota, daf chet, page eight. On the beginning at the at the beginning of the daf, we end up with a really interesting case that we're not going to delve into, at least not today, about two Sota women who are given the drink simultaneously, and how that dynamic of the two of them at the same time might actually have impact on each other's experience and and status. But what I want to get to is what happens, it's, you know, different citations from the Mishnah of the process of how the Kohen handles this woman when she comes to the Beit HaMikdash for this Sota ordeal. Oh my goodness. The Kohen takes, clo- takes hold of her clothing. So we have two citations. One is from the Mishnah that tells us where the Kohen says that to, where the Mishnah says that the Kohen took took hold, took hold of her clothing, which I believe is also a verse. But the part that is definitely a verse, Ufarat Rosha Isha, we've talked about this that the that the Kohen um uncovered, or again, perhaps it means disheveled, or the woman's head. Clearly there is some measure of disgrace or shame in this action that he does, and Ella Rosha. So the Gemara says, one second, that verse Ufarat Rosha Isha only gives us the fact that her head is now uncovered. When how does that how do we understand that the Kohen took a hold of her garment? Where do we even get that? Gulfaminai, how do we get her body? Talmudomar, Haisha. The fact that it says Ufarat Rosh Haisha, the very fact that it says the woman should teach you also to know that he grabbed her by her body or by her garment or or some such. So then why does it say, why, why not just have it say, why not say, and uncover her head, right? So the Gemara explains that this idea of uncovering her head, which as opposed to say a discussion of hair, the implication is that he's really just uncovering her head. So the Gemara goes on to say, no, it. It's it's more than that, namely that the Kohen not only uncovers her head, but also soter, soter to undo or unbraid her hair. And I suppose that's where the understanding of ufarat, I mean disheveled, kind of fits in together, right? This idea that what he's doing in this process is, you know, undoing her her hair as it was normally worn. Um, fine. So this is again part of the shaming of this woman. So the Gemara goes on, and I, I want to note that there's a machloket here, there's a dispute here between Rabbi Yehuda and Chachamim about this exact question of, it, again, it cites the Mishnah, right? Rabbi Yehuda Omer, im ba, if her heart was attractive, if her hair was attractive, right? The degree to which the Kohen will grab her garment, dishevel her, t- uncover her hair, if she's particularly attractive, then he won't do it. Rabbi Huda is worried that the onlookers, the bystanders of this public event, would somehow come to sexual thoughts or some such thing in the presence of this woman if she is sufficiently attractive, whatever that means. So the Gemara says, one second, and the rabbis were not going to be concerned about that. And the fact is that the Gemara goes on to say that both the, the two of them, two of them, the two parties here, Rabbi Huda versus Chachamim actually had a different, took opposite sides, at least apparently, in a different case where the discussion was if a if a person is 
um, has violated halacha to the degree that they are sentenced by baiting to a death by stoning. And the Gemara there talks about how the man would be stoned. The rabbis say that the man would be stoned naked and the woman would be stoned, but not naked. She's going to be wearing her clothing because, and it seems to be a question about her her nakedness, the propriety of it, what the onlookers would think and so on. Except for the Rabbi Yehuda in that case seems to think that indeed she would be naked or at least largely disrobed and the man uh, perhaps not. So, or I'm not even sure that, it, let me say in this piece of the Gemara, it does not say how, what the man himself would be wearing, but in the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda, but the point is that he's not as concerned about the woman being stoned, her particular attire, in the same way that he seems to be for the Sota woman. The Machloket continues, and it's really interesting, but I want to jump ahead onto Ahmed Bet. We have another, you know, quick snippet from the Mishnah. The Mishnah says if she was wearing white garments. So the point is then that the Kohen would then dress her kind of to be the opposite of how she presents herself. If she was wearing white garments, he would cover her with black garments. And one of the sages, and it doesn't name him, which is interesting, that if her, if the black garments were particularly like good for her, right, pleasing for her, that she looked good in them, then they would make sure to cover her in in ugly clothing. So again, all of this is, you know, to heap shame upon shame for this person, this woman who is has been accused of adultery, warned not to be in seclusion, nonetheless was in seclusion, and now they've begun this process. They're well into the process of what really amounts to a very public shaming that leads to the conclusion of whether she's guilty or not. I just want to note, the Gemara here goes on, you aleha what if she's wearing gold um, it's adornments, right? Meaning jewelry or some kind of decoration. So again, that's from the Mishnah. It goes on. So the point is that at that point, if she was wearing these gold adornments, jewelry, whatever, the Gemara says, well, isn't it obvious? that he's going to make her unattractive, the Kohen is going to make her unattractive or less attractive by un, you know, uncovering her, taking, grabbing hold of her garment, taking off her head covering, dressing her in clothing, garments that are unpleasant. And then, you know, you really need to say that they're going to take the gold, her gold jewelry away from her? Like, isn't this already a matter of even more um, humiliation, more degradation? And the Gemara says, well, it's like they say, like people say, namely, if a person who is, apparently was like a known statement, that a person is undressed, naked, and wearing shoes. Which, I guess the point is that once you're, un- if you're not wearing clothing, and you are wearing shoes, then the person, then it becomes even more obvious that you're not wearing clothing because. So maybe you would think the implication is right that maybe you would think that the Soto woman who's wearing jewelry will be all the more shamed because the jewelry kind of emphasizes that she's not dressed in the normal way of one who's wearing that same jewelry, um, which is it's a Gemara kind of thinking to get there. It's an interesting potentially added 
humiliation here, meaning there is nothing about this process that is um, that leaves the woman with any semblance of her own personal dignity and standing. Look, this stuff is complicated. I mean, they're definitely describing in very great detail the type of humiliation that this woman basically had to undergo. And I, we talked about this in yesterday's staff also. And I think, again, as a modern learner, my sympathy goes with the woman. And I keep having to sort of remind myself, you know, I think the setup is supposed to be that she did do something wrong. And we're going to see uh, more about this in a Brisa that's quoted on Amud Bet, which sort of like outlines step by step, like because she did this, you know, this is the punishment that happens to her because she did this. This is why we do this to her. Like it's trying to set it up that this is a person who really did do, you know, later on in part of that discussion, they do end up quoting Rav Nachman, um, who says in the name of uh, Rabbi Baravua, right, reminding us of the Pasuka, kamocha, right, Barur lo that when somebody is going to be condemned to death, we can't like just totally humiliate them. We do need to think a little bit about, um, you know, that they still need to be treated uh you know, that we still need to be treated nicely. Um, and so they, and the Gemara basically says, us, no, everybody agrees with that principle, right? But essentially, you know, what, and, and they talk about how does that principle fit in with this machlokas between the rabbis and Rabbi Yehuda. But I, I don't know, it's, it's a hard dap to read, but I appreciate that they bring in this principle from Nachman finally at the end. Yeah, I think that's, you know, I think they're giving us the range within its limitations, the range of views here. Okay, so I'm going to move on now to the Mishnah. And the Mishnah that we find in this stop, you know, I think even becomes more uh, sort of difficult to read. And it says the following, right, according to the measure which one measures a person's actions, that is how uh, they, meaning sort of God, right, will measure for him. The idea being what we would call this is like mida keneged mida, right? That's the that's the principle. That in other words, your divine punishment is going to be dealt with you in the way that you were dealt with, or what the way that your what your sin was, and then that your divine punishment will be accordingly. So that's the principle of mida keneged mida. And then it goes on to say he kishta avera. She adorned herself for the sin, right? In other words, she made herself look beautiful for adultery. So then God will disgrace her. He She revealed herself for sin. So then she is revealed. God reveals her to all, right? In other words, that's why her clothing is removed the way that it is. Um, she sinned with the thigh first and then with the stomach. So therefore, the thigh should be struck first and then the stomach. So in other words, uh, what it's basically describing is, is during the actual sexual act or that sexual encounter of, of adultery, right? First, the thigh would sort of be the first part of the body that is uh, revealed, right? And then it would be her stomach. Um, and I wonder if the stomach is actually a euphemism there, okay? But the idea is, is so, you know, the thigh first and then the stomach. And the rest of her body does not escape 
uh, either. In other words, her whole body will be will be affected when she drinks that water. So the Gemara then gets into a discussion that is, from a theological point of view, is very difficult to read, right? Where it talks about this principle of midah connected midah. Amar of Yosef Afal Gab de Midab even though the exact measure, what he's talking about here of the different types of the four types of capital punishment no longer exists, right? So there are four types of capital punishment that are described in the Torah. We're going to learn about this when we re- learn Masakat Sanhedrin, which are stoning, burning, beheading, and strangulation. Uh, Skila, Srefa, Chereg, uh, Behenek. Okay, those are the, the, the four of them. Um, so he says, but this concept of Mida, connected Mida, that has not ceased. That still exists, even though there's no more capital punishment. And then the Gemara again says to Amar Rav Yosef, because Rav Yosef says, Tani and Rav Yosef also taught Miyom from the day that the temple was destroyed, Aval Pisha Sanhedrin, even though the great Sanhedrin was no longer, Arba Mitot Lo Butlu. But it says, but the four types of executions have not ceased. Now the Gemara says, but we said, but they have ceased. We know that we don't have capital punishment anymore. Rather, the judgment of those four punishment, of those four types of punishment have not stopped. And then it describes it again to me, which is very problematic. Let's say somebody was deserving of death by stoning. So what happens to that person? They'll fall from a roof or they'll be trampled by a wild beast. Somebody who is deserving of death by burning. Will either fall into fire or be bitten by a snake. Right, Someone who is uh, deserving of death by uh, beheading. Will either be handed over to the authorities or bandits will come and kill him. Right, someone who's deserving of death by strangulation, or will we'll either drown in a river or will die of, you know, it's, in English it's translated as, as uh, uh, Quincy, but the idea is it's some type of disease where your throat constricts. So, I, look, this is difficult to read because, you know, this is the kind of price which is saying like, oh, when bad and unusual things happen to a person, you know what? They actually deserved it. And I don't think any of us, you know, practice theology that way today. I think that actually makes many of us very, very uncomfortable. I, I don't have a good answer about what to do with this particular brysa. Is this more of a rabbinic hope? I mean, the only thing that I can think of is that, you know, when the rabbis are writing this, and this is sort of in a post Beit HaMikdash world, where sort of the divine presence is not as felt, this is kind of giving an assurance of like, oh, no, even though it may not be the way that it was supposed to be with capital punishment, you know, the divine presence is there. I think what's also puzzling to me about this is there's a statement that we'll learn later on in the Gemara. I believe it's in Sanhedrin, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, which says that essentially, if you have more than one case of capital punishment for a Sanhedrin in 70 years, that's considered to be a bloody Sanhedrin. So capital punishment. I think it's a mission in Horeot, actually. Okay. So it's not, it wasn't common, but like the way that this Brysa reads, it's like, oh, these are like common occurrences. And if, and if they happen, that was a person who was supposed to be killed. So I, I, I don't know. I think it's a way, this Brysa is a way to make order of the world, but, but I don't like the Brysa. 
I mean, anything that makes it too pat is really hard. And while there may indeed be this kind of, you know, order from behind the pargod, right, from behind the curtain that we don't get to know, I feel like, okay, so then, but the way we experience it is so beyond any real midah connected midah. So yes, on certain stories in Tanakh or certain, you know, presence, like this kind of point of Chazal, we can say, aha, there we see midah connected midah. But in our experience of the world, I mean, I'm with you, your data. This is a kind of thing where, I don't know, it, it's very hard to relate to this as um, certainly the only way that are, you know, that things are happening because it's just not, it's not the experience we know. Yeah. And uh, right. I would agree with you. And I, I think we have to respect this was a way that many of Chazal viewed the world, you know, that, that you could have some of these type of pat answers. Um, and I just want to point up just to wrap out this, you know, episode, there's a very lengthy brisa, which basically goes through in detail the Mida Kenegad Mida of the Sota, right? She did this in sin. And so this is part of the punishment that she endures. And again, uh, you know, between yesterday's staff and today's staff, sort of this humiliation and degradation that the woman undergoes for me is very difficult to read. Uh, again, we I think we have to keep reminding ourselves this is a woman who, from Chazal's point of view, is viewed as having done something, even if if, if she, you know, didn't commit the actual act of adultery, uh, she did something that that aroused enough suspicion that she deserves to be humiliated in this way. And I know that that's not going to make everyone feel good about reading this or agree with that price. I think it's something of negligence, right? Meaning the first time Mela, the first time she ends up, you know, secluded with somebody who's not her husband and the husband is irate about it. And he has the right to take it further, meaning beginning with a warning or not even so, or he could let it go. Right. But the fact there's already something that's not great in the fact that he wants to, you know, call the question, so to speak. But also she then goes ahead despite the warning. So is she trying to spite the husband? Is she not? Is she ignoring it? Is she too wrapped up in the new dynamic to think about it? Right. Again, we can think of many different paths this could take. But at the end of the day, she's neglectful of this warning for whatever reason. Maybe she's justified. But at the end of the day, when the court then says, or Kohanim and Chazal after them come and say, yo, like this is going to get you this, the, the trial by ordeal that happens to a Sota woman, it's exactly that, right? She wasn't, she wasn't careful after she'd been warned that she needed to be careful, that she needed to be much more circumspect in her behavior. Maybe she shouldn't have to be circumspect in her behavior. She should have to be, but... I, I don't know, like, there's something in that that does speak to me in terms of the legitimacy of what's going on. Uh, I, I hear that. Um, again, I, I, I'm reading this through modern eyes, and I can't deny that. And I, I understand, you know, this is a time where I will say I, as a learner, have a tremendous bias, and I'm trying to figure out how to undo some of that bias while I read this stuff. Well, I think the humiliation, sorry, I'm just, I want to say, I think the humiliation factor is very difficult for it, no matter what we do with it. Well, that's our top discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rebidi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. 
Let us know what you thought about the stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go learn. Thank <laughs> you.